I think because of the gravitas of what AI can bring to the world in terms of you know social impact, leaders have to be extremely humble. As a leader um, in this space, you you have to kind of understand that you're going to have to hire people who aren't the typical um, employee. The other thing too, it's very important for the leadership team to hire um, a diverse group of people. And I really mean diverse, um, because if you're designing for essentially the whole world, you need to represent the whole world on the team. Hi, I'm Mike Green, and welcome to Understanding Users, the podcast where I chat candidly with UX design and research professionals from around the world to hear about how they build digital products and services in a user-centered way. In the previous episodes, Chris, we chat, we've chatted about kind of impact of AI on sort of designers of display, and we've talked about kind of career journeys and potential, you know, upskilling, professional upskilling considerations for people wanting to get into this. Let's talk a little bit now, if we if we can, about leadership, design leadership in particular, kind of of AI team. So, I mean, you've obviously been in various leadership positions and very senior ones in your career. You know, how do you think leaders of the future will need to approach kind of recruiting, mentoring, managing members of of AI teams, if I can put it like that? Yeah, um, I think um, it's a very interesting, you know, and again, I, I if I if I come across like I'm an expert, I am absolutely not because there's no such thing in this space. It's still evolving. But the, the sort of things that I've noticed in the space are, um, really, the the people who thrive and the people who really help us um, identify important challenges and um, you know great solutions are the people who are kind of typically um, not well you know suited to corporate environments. Um, corporate environments are very much kind of you know th- there's a little box that you fit into and you do the same work every kind of day you do it well um you perform at a high level um but it's very kind of repetitive types of work and the people that i've found that actually help in this space are very much um a different kind of mindset to that they thrive in ambiguity they're not frightened by um not having a roadmap and not having a job description um, and not knowing, you know, how their performance review will be measured because they're, they're an odd character in this in this company. They're the people who seek out these um, incredibly challenging, you know, spaces and try and figure them out for themselves. And so, you know, they're they're um, very self driven. Um, they're ambitious. They are. Um, very very intelligent they're very empathetic you know very high eq and um they they try and uh, network across the company to kind of gather and source information from lots of different perspectives to inform their own um kind of sense of, of direction and that makes them very difficult for hr and managers to kind of track um i've seen many many times where managers get frustrated because this person's not you know fitting into the box and they're kind of like you know oh my gosh it's my problem child who's you know too creative and all over the place but actually that's exactly what we need here because you need to kind of pull in those um those different perspectives in fact um you know i've worked with very i'm i'm neurodivergent um I've worked with you know many neurodivergent people, and 
you know, they kind of engender this ability to kind of multi-process lots of different things at once and synthesize them. Um, but it, they're challenging to work with, and I'm very challenging to work with because I think about a lot of different things and ask very hard questions. Um, and that's frustrating for some people. But that's how you get to, you know, insights and, and breakthroughs that nobody else is seeing in the room, right? And so um, as a leader um, in this space, you you have to kind of understand that you're going to have to hire people who aren't the typical um, employee, um, the other thing, too, it's very important for the leadership team to hire um, a diverse group of people. And I really mean diverse. Um, all different backgrounds, um, ages, um, obviously gender, abilities and impairments, um, you know, cultural backgrounds, um, financial security, all all levels. Um, because if you're designing for essentially the whole world, you need to represent the whole world on the team. And so again, it's actually about having um, productive discourse and not agreeing on everything. We often say um, disagree and commit on something. And it's actually, you know, many a time if somebody will walk into a room, you'd think there's a flaming row going on. But actually what it is, it's actually, you know, people advocating and defending very you know, ambiguous things and, and trying to advocate for communities in ways that, you know, they're, they're trying to do their best. You know, you feel like I'm here as a representative of, of some, someone. And if they were listening in on this conversation right now, am I saying the right thing to, you know, kind of defend um, their position in the world and their equities? Um, and so, you know, often hiring people who are awkward and difficult to work with is also, again, um, you know, a lot of people who work in the responsible AI space are incredibly, incredibly mission driven and will say things that are, are quite inflammatory in meetings, right? That absolutely fly in the face of, you know, the corporate guidelines in quote, right? Because they couldn't give a damn about what the corporation um, wants or needs, they're actually there to defend these communities. So, so that poses an interesting question. Like all of this is 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 as fascinating and necessary as you say. But for a corporation which has you know quarterly results to announce, has a CEO and a management team who have to look at the bottom line for the survival of the organization, how do those two sort of worlds meet? Or dare yeah, I say collide. It's <laughs> it's um it's not easy, but it goes back to kind of what I was saying earlier in, in one of the previous episodes is that you have to write down your principles and values, right? And and you get everybody who's on that team to agree or disagree and commit on what those values are. And and just saying a value isn't enough. You have to give make it concrete. So how are we going to measure that we're delivering against this value, right? And what what is a me, you know a, an example measurement of doing no harm? Like what does that even mean? Right? So, you know, values can seem esoteric, but you have to make them concrete so that you know that helps take some of the heat out of the room because everybody's on the same page and it's no longer a a an argument or a discussion, a debate. It's like, no, th- this is sort of what we've agreed to. And, and of course, you know, as the world changes and cultures um, evolve, 
those norms and those values might change. And so you might have to kind of iterate on those, uh, you know, every six months or 12 months or something is, you know, things change. Um, but at least that can help reduce the arguments. Um, and by sharing those things, those structures up the chain and getting buy-in from senior leadership, that helps them understand how that team is orienting itself, right? And there, there is, a, you know, a weird um, tension between, you know, making money and, and doing the right thing. And so that goes back to questions of why and how we should use AI. Should we be using AI in social media? Um, you know, is a good question. Should we be using AI to kind of manipulate what people are seeing on their screens, right? That's what AI does versus should we be using AI in healthcare to help find new drugs, right? You know, you can, you can see how those are completely different kinds of scenarios that require different kinds of principles and values. So again, it's not a one size fits all AI thing. And that's the challenge with um, regulation. Regulation is written for all industries. Um, and so when you look at regulation within your own industry, you kind of then have to take it another step further and really make it concrete, specific to the space that you work in. So would you ever go as far as to say there are certain industries, sectors, verticals that shouldn't deploy AI or should do it with a great deal more caution than others? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. No, I think um, I think the world and and the sort of engineering and scientific community are waking up to um, those those questions, and a lot of teams across a lot of companies um, are having those conversations around how do we build in ethics, how do we protect society? Um, that you know these people um, are not stupid; they're they're very. Um, very intelligent, and they're they're you know coming to these conclusions themselves, and and building those frameworks um, in in the sort of unique way that needs needs to be built within their own space. Right, and and kind of picking up the leadership point again, I'm interested to know if if someone is let's say a UX uh, manager, you know they're not C-suite, but they've got a team under them, um, and they want to start upskilling that team in. AI capability, how would you, again, how would you recommend, you know, not at an individual level, but at a team level, would you, should they go about kind of starting that process? Yeah, um, we did that a little bit um, at Meta. Um, obviously, you know, there, there are a lot of people who work in companies that build technology that don't understand the full stack, right? And so you have to kind of start to go on a roadshow and, and, and share that information with them and show them, you know, the kind of power and um, functionality that AI can deliver. And so I think, you know, a, a nice way for teams to do it is to have everybody on the team kind of um, bring um, something that they've noticed in the world that is using AI every week to a conversation and share it and talk about it. That's as, <clears throat> excuse me, as simple as it gets. Um, one of the techniques that we did too was to go through the the Google training together um, and set an hour aside a week and and kind of go through that um, and and also review like things like the EU AI Act and and talk through those things so that you start to understand the definitions of these things 
Um, I think as, as AI becomes more technically proficient, it's going to be a lot less about um, engineering and, you know, software and, and more about um, ethics and frameworks of how things think. And those things will be written to, to kind of for everybody's comprehension, not just the, the scientific um, community. I'm just chuckling about a, a team at Meta doing a Google online training course. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you'd assume it would be kind of banned or something. Well, well we, we did it because we wanted to kind of get other perspectives, right? And so we have our own training. Um, we wanted to see what others in the space are doing. Um, you know, I, we did it with Microsoft's work and IBM's work as well and others. There are other smaller community, you know, uh, companies and um Nonprofits that are working in this space, and we would do what we call lit reviews of their work as well. So um, we want to be comprehensive, and you know, when you're designing something that you hope will end up influencing the industry, you kind of need that context, right? You need to understand how other experts in the field are thinking about things, um, and you know. If you're at the other end of the scale, where you're kind of very in, in the weeds and deep into this space you're pretty much reading every single white paper that comes out, right? So, you you know, there's thousands. I mean, just in the last six months, I think there's been over 2,000 white papers in, in the AI space, which is insane. It's like normally there's maybe 15 and now there's 2,000. And um, yet you're trying to stay ahead of these, these concepts um, and seeing how they sort of trickle down to practical applications um, and what does that mean? And and try, you know, these teams, these research teams, you know, applied research teams are trying to figure out what kinds of use cases some of these models can be applied to. And you're know, trying to watch them from a distance to see, you know, how they're figuring that out. So a very flippant, non-serious question. Can't you get an AI to help you read 2000 white papers on AI? You know, the funny thing is, is that... Um, there are companies right now, and I've worked on it myself, where AI is actually helping you build AI, right? Right. So, yeah. you know, we obviously GitHub, you know, Copilot can can do, you know, typical software stuff, but there's definitely um, Auto ML um, where there are systems that build the ML for you, um, and that's becoming more and more sophisticated. And I think what you'll find is that people will start to build um, compliance AIs that will scan your AI system to make sure you're compliant um, and will make sure that the latest regulation as it comes off the press is being represented in, in the, the stack. So is the kind of net effect of all of this then that those of us in the kind of creative design research space are becoming you know, more operators than curators, if you like? Is it is it just sort of, you know, running kind of AI programs and letting the program do the work rather than, or the model rather do the work than having a huge amount of creative input? I, I do think um, a lot of the roles will be more of a creative director type role, right? Where you're, or an editor in chief, um, you know, where you're kind of looking at multiples of, you know, options and deciding. I, I spent, uh, about three hours yesterday on Mid Journey, um, creating some really high resolution images, and you know, by the time I finished, you wouldn't be able to tell that it wasn't a, a real photograph. It was incredible, um, and I think that's that that's going to be what a lot of this is. Is we have that human intuition of this is the right thing, 
because you know there's a funny meme which is like you know engineers are safe because you know leaders can't tell them what they need right right and, and that's that's still true even even when you're the engineer or you're the designer right you even don't know what you're designing until you kind of get to a point where you're like okay this feels like it's the right thing now but there's no there's no like hard line there where it's like oh yeah i checked all the boxes and this is perfect it's not it's not mathematics so i think um definitely will be more creative directors. The, the scary thing for that is the atrophying around being truly creative and inventive um, yourself. And, you know, that that might wane as we get, e you know, these things get easier to use. Um, and so we're going to have to find ways to kind of maintain that inventiveness. And... Yeah, and but artists and inventors themselves will are turning to kind of AI as a, as a new kind of a medium, right? That's as a new right. way of exploring kind of artistic expression. Yeah, yeah. So I I do feel like from that perspective, like from a creativity perspective, this is gonna you know it's like steroids for for creativity. Um, there's going to be a series of new products that are coming out in the next you know twenty four months that are just going to revolutionize. The creative industries um, to the likes of which you've never seen before, and it's it's going to you know make everybody an artist, right? A, a creator in some way, and you know what is interesting with that is when you build those kinds of things, you also want to build ways for people to monetize the things that they're creating, right? And so hopefully somebody's thinking about that too, where there's like net new marketplaces that help you. Um, benefit from the work that you can now you because you know we can flood the market with thousands of images now but they're all you know mediocre who who cares you you want to get you know it's still about getting to that amazing image or that amazing piece of music or whatever that thing is is that you're creating um and and being able to see the value difference between that and and just the mediocre so final question then, Chris, on this kind of design leadership space, what skills do you think kind of these leaders of teams working on language models on AI will need to develop to be successful? Kind of what will make a successful leader? And to what extent is that similar to, to the current, you know, metrics for, for a good leadership or, or not? Um, I Again, I'm not an expert, but I think because of the gravitas of what AI can bring to the world in terms of, you know, social impact, um, leaders have to be extremely humble. And they, they do have to place themselves in a position of um, really designing, um, you know, for the edges of, of society first, right? So those historically marginalized, um, you know, communities, that, that has to be the focus. Uh, especially in social um, spaces, um, because if you can design it for them to benefit, then you'll bring obviously the rest of the the world along along with you. So, it's it's about trying to um, advocate for those groups. It's really making sure that the team that's working on that is 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 considerate of that, and that the you know nobody is being uh, trampled on in in discussions or debates, um, egos are left behind, creating flat environments where the team that works on that um, is truly flat. 
Um, I've definitely seen um, in my time, you know, the, the sort of more um, verbal um, leaning team members tend to kind of suck up the, the air time and, and leave others in the room, you know, not being able to get across their point. Um, maybe maybe they're a little shy or something and, and that's that's fine, but that's not okay. And as a leader, you need to make sure that you're um, really making a safe space for everybody to, to speak. I think um, that that's probably the most important trait actually is to, to build a very trusting environment for your team. Um, we created, um, this, this isn't new, but we created um, user manuals for our team at Meta. So ways to work with Chris, which, which you know, which ways does Chris like to learn? You know, how, you know, when he's in a conversation, this, how does he act? How, what makes him defensive? What are the triggers? Um, how can you um, work with Chris in conflict? All those kinds of things, right? And even doing that for yourself is is really hard to do, right? It's really hard to write down and share with a colleague, like this is what triggers me. And this is where you can see me going off a cliff and I'm not very productive and, and being open and honest about that is very challenging. But if we- And vulnerable, right? Very it requires vulnerable. a huge amount of vulnerability. Very vulnerable. And, um, you know, but, but only by doing that can you get to a place where um, those people can really feel safe enough to have that flaming row with you about the fact that you're making a, a stupid, you know, decision that could impact communities in a negative way right and and they have to be able to say that in a way where they're not fearful of their job right because they know that you trust them implicitly you might disagree vehemently but they have to be able to speak their mind in in that way and defend in that way and so you do have to become that vulnerable with them and you know, you have to build a space where that vulnerability isn't then weaponized against you or them, right? And so you write ground rules as a team of we're, we're you know, in building this, um, you know, user manual for each of ourselves and the, here's the rules and we'll never step over and we'll never use what's in the user manual as a means to kind of manipulate someone. Um, and, th and that's how you kind of have to get to that. And then everybody in the room is the the you know, able to, to share freely great ideas, stupid ideas, you know, whatever. And oftentimes, you know, somebody might think that you have a stupid idea and it's actually genius, that they've been too shy to kind of really bring it forward. And, you know, now that you've created this safe environment, that little post-it note sticks on the wall and you're like, whoa, where did this come from? This is an incredible idea. Why isn't, you know, and, and that's the only way to get that that out of of the people in the room so what you that's fascinating and what you're saying is obviously not exclusive to kind of ai teams i mean arguably this is organizational cultural change that has gone on in some organizations more than others but needs to be done this kind of safe space psychological safety you know vulnerability ability to be vulnerable arguably any kind of group of people working together should be able to manifest that but but don't. Imagine, so that you, imagine that you know we hire you at a, a large tech company and you've grown up in um poverty your whole life right and you come into a room and you know there's two do two dozen phds from the highest um you know universities in the western world in the room 
And, you know, that's the expectation for you to, to be able to speak as freely and openly in front of those other people. That's an immense amount of pressure, right? Immense. You are so uh, out of your, you feel like you're out of your own depth. Imposter syndrome is horrific. And you have to put yourself in that person's mindset of they're coming from a completely different place from you. And this is not normal. You know, standing with all these people is not normal for them. And so how do it, and it takes time, right? It's not going to happen overnight. It might take, you know, three months, six months, a year, two years to get them to get to a place where they're finally comfortable in sharing their, their true, um, values and, and opinions. Um, and so as a leader, you have to create that framework that helps them, you know, ease into that as um, efficiently as they can. You can't rush them into that. You can't say by three months, I need you to be speaking that, that again, yeah, you know, I've had managers tell me that and it's like, give me a break, right? It's like, that's not going to happen. Like people take their own time and you, you have to, you know, get out of the office, do, you know, offsites, build that rapport. And sometimes you're going to find that there are people who just don't want to engage in that way. And that's also fine. Um, and you have to respect that, right? There are not people who want to go for dinner after work. They had enough or they've got other things that are more important in their lives. And you know, that's also part of this too, where it's like, well, this person doesn't turn up for the, the team events. Um, you know, and that can start to impact their performance reviews, which is, is ludicrous, right? It's, it's, you know, pe people should be able to live however they want to live. Um, we, we have 40 hours of their, their time a week and let's, you know, try and make it as productive as we can because, um, you know, as these systems get more intelligent, those values are going to become much more important. Yeah. And a final question for you, Chris, what message of hope or reassurance would you give to, you know, the AI skeptics or those fearful of this of this brave new world that's rushing towards us? Um, well, I know many of those people. I have many of them in my own family. Um, <laughs> you know, ch change is inevitable in in society and it and this won't stop. Right. There's there's really no way to put the genie back in the box. Um, there's been lots of discussions around, you know, pausing um, AI and things like that. Um, I do think, you know, slowing down, going from research to public launches is probably a good thing to think about um, because we haven't tested these things at scale. Um, and also the way that they've been built in the first place hasn't been you know, ethically considered from every angle. Uh, when you scrape the entire internet to uh, to train your model, that's not that's not cool. Um, so yeah, th there's definitely things that I think the industry is still struggling with that can can improve. But I I definitely think AI is probably the most sophisticated tool humans have ever made, and it's gonna you know really help us with some of the most intractable problems that we've ever faced. That's a wonderfully positive message to end on. And I just a big, big thank you for a really fascinating series of conversations. I really appreciate you coming on. And I've learned an awful lot, and I'm sure those listening will have learned an awful lot as well. So thank you again. 
It's been a pleasure, Mike. This is such a, an interesting topic. And, uh, you know, every day there's like a new piece of news. Um, and, you know, I feel like I'm very blessed to be working in this space. Thanks for listening to this episode of Understanding Users. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening and feel free to share this episode more widely. And feel free, of course, to drop me a line with any feedback via LinkedIn or my website, researchable.uk. Join me again next time when I'll be sharing some more insights from digital design professionals. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centered.